everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Off the Record Show. I'm Aram Mukumuf, your host. Thanks for tuning in. On this show, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about their entrepreneurial journeys, how they built businesses, raised money, hired rock and pop stars, and didn't quit along the way. Uh, as a founder, you'll hear practical insights into their world, psychology, and thinking so you can apply it into your company and get better. Uh, my guest today is Jim Estel, the founder and owner of Danby Appliances. Uh, Jim is a Canadian technology entrepreneur, executive, and philanthropist. He started his first computer distribution business from the trunk of his car while in university and grew that business to $2 billion in sales. Uh, Jim has invested in, mentored, and advised over 150 uh, technology companies, including BlackBerry. Uh, in addition, Jim was the entre uh, Ernest & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019 uh, for, I think, Ontario, if I'm not mistaken, Jim, and uh, has received both the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario. So I am so ecstatic to have you here join us today, Jim. Thank you so much for participating. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's start off by, if you could tell us about your earlier days uh, as an entrepreneur, like how did you get started? How did you know that entrepreneurship was your path even? So I was uh, studying engineering at the University of Waterloo and I wanted to design circuit boards. But to design circuit boards, I needed a computer and back then computers were expensive and I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two of them and then sold one and then someone else wanted a computer so I bought another two and then someone wanted a printer and then someone wanted a monitor and a disk drive and memory. Next thing you know, I'm buying and selling computer hardware, software, peripherals and uh, that was the start. Um, and then I, I ran that for a couple of years. I was still designing circuit boards. Um, and I was running in a fairly small office, maybe a thousand square feet, and I ran out of space. So what I did is I took the engineers and I split it off into a different company. And that company just sold last year. So that company was uh, operating for over 30 years profitably. Oh, wow. um, and uh, so that company kept going. I stayed with the computer distribution company. And that's the one that we grew eventually to uh, two billion in sales. Crazy. Uh, and I know that wasn't your only company you've done uh, before even Danby. But do you have any major business successes or, or failures you could share with us today if, uh, before Danby? Uh, well, see, that was my main big one. The other ones are the companies I invested in. I had success in a number of those ones. As you mentioned, one of the bigger ones that I did well with was uh, BlackBerry. But uh, I also invested in uh, many, many other companies that sold to Google and sold to uh, Infospace and uh, sold to uh, Secure Computing and, and whatnot. But that was kind of like angel and venture capital, angel, angel capital. Um, but I was sort of an overnight success that took like 30 years. So I did the same thing for 30 years. I had a couple of spin outs. So I started a company called Simply Clean that spun out in, uh, into another company and that company got sold and uh, is now part of Now Foods, which is, they make supplements and stuff like that. So I, I did have that um, one spin out. Mm -hmm. As far as failures go, I had tons and tons of failures, but good entrepreneurs, we just kind of, okay, you've got the failure. You, you don't think, you don't uh, focus on the failures. You get success, uh, from the win, it wins. Like I, I invest in over 150 tech companies. 
I can name, I only had 25 exits. That means I had 100 that you've never heard of. Why is that? Well, because they went bankrupt. And, but everyone thinks you're a genius because, oh, wow, you did, uh, you did BlackBerry. Oh, you did Touch Bistro. You did Clear Path Robotics. Oh, you did uh, MyoVision. Oh, you're a genius. Yeah, I'm a genius, but uh, no, <laughs> not really. And, and, and when I was selling computers, I was distributing other people's products. So I'd you know, sell Lexmark and HP and Microsoft and whatnot. I would sign five lines, and one of them would be successful. And everyone mm-hmm. would think, oh, I'm a genius. So I signed Apple when Apple was about to go bankrupt. Everyone think, oh, what a genius signed Apple. At the same time, I signed four other lines. Three of them were walking wounded, sell a little bit. One of them went bankrupt. But you don't know about those because it it was all done in the fail off and fail fast, fail cheap. So the failures weren't fatal. They were just goose eggs. And I, I live my life by goose eggs. That's that's what I have. All these just little goose eggs. They all They all are manageable. Um, and, and I actually believe in failure. I want my company to have a, um, a culture of failure where um, having a failure does not make us a failure, not trying makes us a failure. Mm-hmm. And I've also found that often these failures um, aren't long-term failures. They, in the long-term, work out to be, um, you can sometimes make lemonade out of lemons. The, there, there must be, though, I mean, I don't know that many people who've done what you've done, Jim. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's quite amazing your accomplishments to date. Is there any kind of special skill set or trade craft that you, you have that allows you to kind of have thought differently to kind of succeed as an entrepreneur that others don't? Well, well uh, the main thing is I'm eccentric. So if everybody is doing something one way, then I say that's not the way to do it. Because we will have no competitive advantage. If we do things exactly the way everybody else does it, what advantage do we have? So the only thing we can do is try things differently than what our competitors do. And uh, because I've been in highly competitive industries all my life, it mm-hmm. tends to not be one big competitive advantage. I didn't invent rocket science. Rather, it's all the little tiny, oh, we can save uh, 2% on shipping if we do this. We can save... Uh, Four percent on printing. If we do that, we can save one percent here, two percent there. Oh, we can ship ten percent more um, in a truck by doing this. So it's all these little tiny micro competitive advantages that add up to give you the advantage that you need to remain in a competitive business. Mm-hmm. And you, you touched upon, um, I think, uh, your approach or methodology, which is fail fast, fail often. Yeah, and fail, fail often, cheap. fail fast, fail cheap. Yeah. Right. Can can you can you expand on that a bit more? Like I want to I want to I want to unpack that. Well, failure trying things is the best experiment. So I don't actually do much market research. Rather, I try it. So um, bring it in, and my outlet store has products that you're gonna say, "Well, gee, I never saw um, a blue fridge in the market." You're right. You didn't see it. We tried. We made a bunch of blue fridges, and now we're out selling them out at discount because that was a failure. It didn't work. But, okay. um, you know, we'll get our cost out of it maybe, or maybe we'll sell it below cost. But it's cheaper, in my experience, to try it than to research and research. Also, research only works if you're in a status quo. So if you're in exactly the same market where there's no real change, you can probably do market research. But um, 
you can't do market research where there is no market. If I can say, oh, I'm, I'm going to have a mailbox that sits on your front porch to collect perlator and uh, UPS parcels, you, you, you're going to say, oh, I don't need one. You don't have one now. You don't need one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you're right. You don't need one just yet. But within a decade, you will have some sort of parcel solution because you're not going to want your parcel stolen and your neighbor gets one and your neighbor doesn't have the parcel stolen. Next thing you know, you'll have one. Tough to do market research on that because people don't know about things that they don't currently have. It's, it kind of reminds me, I think, of the Apple methodology around how they do marketing or creating ideas. They sometimes, if I'm not mistaken, they their approach is that customers don't know exactly what they want yet we that's right. we are going to create it or you know think of it for them yeah that's um, that's what steve jobs said he said uh, customers don't know what they what they want what until they you want. show it to them and steve I, I actually took part of this market research from steve jobs who i i knew personally had dinner with him more than once and uh really and uh, <laughs> oh yeah well, because i i was we distributed apple at one point, you're too young, but Apple was basically going bankrupt, and we signed it as a line, and uh, and, and so yeah, the what I took from Steve Jobs, he didn't he he was adamant on never doing market research. So mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of the same thing. Just try it and see what uh, works. And it's all about failing often. That's trying multiple things, failing fast, so not keeping doing it for a year or two years. And failing cheap—that's the one that some people forget. Um, so we—I uh, remember—we had a discussion uh, um, like two days ago on our, our some of our new product, and we set a budget and said, "Great, on, on these, we're going to spend half million dollars on this." And that means if we fail, we've lost half million dollars. If we succeed, then uh, then everyone's going to think we're geniuses. And you're not even going to know about the half million dollars. You're just going to say, wow, I went to the outlet store. I'd never seen a product like this. Isn't this an interesting, uh, weird product? We ever had a handle that looked like that. Um, and so is it like if you don't do the market research, is it how much of it is against gut instinct in terms of how you come up with ideas versus like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, speaking to customers or... I don't know, internal, internal innovation through your own team. So, so the best uh, products come from your customers and the best pro- products are ones that solve a problem that you see. So you are having a problem that, you know, I don't know, whenever you upload your podcast, it takes you 20 minutes and someone's going to come up with a product that it takes one minute to do because um, uh, so solving a customer need is the best source of product. A lot of it's gut feel. When I say I don't do market research, I do believe in the wisdom of crowds. And that is there is no expert, which means we do ask a lot of people. So we do a bunch of quick surveys uh, to our staff and say, you know, would you be interested in a product like this? What do you think of this? Uh, you know, we'll try. Uh, we do this with every single product design. We send it out. and you know, here's three three pictures. Do you like the one with the curved uh, handle or the square handle? Or do you like the one with the top opening or the bottom opening? Do you like this or that? Um, so we do a lot of that quick, um, but in the end, it becomes fairly gut feel, fairly intuitive, and not 
as scientific as people would like. Now, part of the reason is I actually, in my earlier career, did some market research and everyone would say they buy the product and you say you have a thousand people say they're going to pay a thousand dollars for the product. Then you go and say, hey, great, we've got the product and they cost a thousand. Oh, that's too expensive. We can't afford that. Oh, we didn't mean we we're actually going to have to pull out our Visa card and pay a thousand dollars, did we? Like, uh, um, so I learned even on that, that people are, can tend to be more optimistic in their, uh, what they might spend money on because they don't want to hurt your feelings. This is particularly true of Canadians. Nobody wants to hurt your feelings. That's the stupidest idea in the world. So, uh, so oh, yeah, it's a great idea. Charge everyone who listens to podcasts $1,000. I think it's a great idea. But, no, 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 I'm not giving you my visa. Yeah, no, it's so true about the mindset between Canada and the U.S. It's mind-blowing for me every time I get on calls with, uh, with the two different mindsets. So, very true. Um, Jim, wanted to... Uh, ask you a question and if I'm not mistaken you're the first guest on our show that we've had so far who has who's in the physical product business so like it's uh, quite novel for us so to to get some information from you today I want to ask what made you or maybe it's prior experience but what what made you go into that route of, of going into a physical of product business um, route well, the, the biggest investments that I missed were the ones that weren't physical products. And that's because at the time I thought, well, if it's not physical products, it's too easy for people to get into it, too people easy for people to copy it. See, physical, that's really tough. I can give you the schematics and the drawings on how to make a freezer. I'll give that to you. I'll email it to you. I'm not worried you're going to compete. It's a heck of a lot of work to make a freezer. You can't do it. You, like you're you're just not going to be able to buy the equipment and train people and, and move it and do the logistics. So I kind of like the physical goods in that you have a barrier to entry um, that you don't have with the, with software, essentially. Um, but the advantage of software is it, it can be done very lightly. Um, so there's advantages to both. With, with physical product, though, it's it's a very capital-intensive um, approach or space. Yes, it is. Uh, how like earlier on how did you kind of get yourself up and up and running uh from like a financing perspective in the early days did you raise did you borrow so that uh, see I, of course i was like a young founder i was 22 years old and uh, so i did what all founders did although back then entrepreneurship was not didn't have the positive aura that has these days and there wasn't a lot so anyway i went out and tried to raise cash and guess what no one would back me no one would give me any money I was not bankable. That has partly made me successful because I became super frugal and I would learn how to do things with no money. And when someone want, had an idea in the company that this would be 10 years later, they say, oh, we, we think we should do this. It's like, okay, who's going to pay for it? We have no money. Who's going to pay for it? And so we um, figured out how to do things in a very cost-effective manner. So we grew within profitability. Um, and it did limit our growth, um, but it um, one of the ways when we were selling physical goods that I learned to limit our growth is we would, if our growth was too high, we would increase our prices a bit. And then our sales would slow a little bit. And then if they slowed too much, oh, better drop the price. And then the sales would pick up. And so it was, uh, uh, and, and of course, we would reinvest all the profits. So I... <laughs> that partly created my relatively modest life that I live unintentionally because I wasn't, couldn't take money out because I had to leave it in the business. So everyone said, oh, I mean, I had a $100 million company. I was 
paying myself minimum wage because that, that I, I need to put everything into the company. And I lived like that so long that it just sort of became who I am. And uh, now I'm very, very comfortable with it. I even say uh, I believe philosophically that any of my employees can live exactly the way I live if they work the same number of hours, same number of years, what, whatnot. And so that's the – and it actually is pretty cool to say to anybody, yeah, you can drive the same car I drive. If, if you work for me uh, and I want the person who drives a forklift to be able to live the same life that I choose to live. Uh, that's an amazing mindset. I uh, really respectful of that. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Jim. If, if a retro, I mean, if you were to do Danby appliances again today, you know, with entrepreneurship being like the cool fuzz that it is, um, would you would you have done anything differently in terms of like initial capital uh, yeah, so, needs? So, um, all right. So I have to clarify. I did not start Danby Appliances. I oh, okay. built my first business to a couple billion in sales. I sold it. I moved to New York for five years and did a bunch of angel capital and sat on some boards and stuff like that. My dad got sick, so I moved back to Guelph and um, I actually started a a marketing, uh, like a digital ad agency at that time, but I sat on the board of Danby Appliance. So I was on the board, the CEO resigned, and um, at the time it was about a $350 million company. I said, oh, I can go in and run it for a while. I started running it for six or eight months. I said, okay, this is what I want to do for the next decade. I'm, I was too young to be retired, but I didn't know it when I first retired because um, <laughs> you're sort of, everyone says, oh, go start your business, make make your millions, then retire and that's what you should do. And I learned, no, I, what's my interest? My interest is business. So I, I don't yet golf. I don't, you know, I don't want to be the, the household handyman. I, I like, I don't want to be retired. So then I said, it was going to be my next decade. Then the ownership of Danby said, now they want me to sell the company. So I said, well, how much for? They told me, I said, okay, fine, I'll buy it. So that's how I ended up owning Danby Appliances because, you know, they were basically selling my, next decade gig out from under me and i'm not going to do that so uh wow. that's crazy i did not know that okay yeah. um a question i have about that i mean you have a lot of experience with um, angel investing um where do you think founders where do you think founders typically get it wrong um when raising capital well founders often don't get it wrong when they're raising capital where they what they do get wrong is what is the business and the, and the mm -hmm. the biggest challenge i see is founders who are technologists engineers designers they are very good on the product but they've missed two other areas and that is the sales and marketing can you sell the product because you know you can design a really sexy product but can you sell it um and the second place you get it wrong is the business so the business model is oh we're going to have a million users and we're going to be they're all going to be free and okay and like and how are you paying the payroll next wednesday like it's not happening so they're missing the business end of it or the sales and marketing end of it and they tend to underestimate the sales and marketing difficulty because mm -hmm. people tend to think oh i brought out a great product it's perfect because it's what they wanted but they're probably they may not be the 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 real ideal customer that's step one and step two, you're, they underestimate the com competition. Like you and I can now, uh, we'll, we'll write a better word process. It'll be way better than Word. Yeah. Okay, it's way better than Word. Uh, do you think we're going to sell it? Uh, I don't think so. There's 
kind of an industry standard and you're not you're not putting knocking them out of the box too soon yeah and, and you, you you just said it like a lot of founders typically focus on always getting it perfect always getting it right um and you know this best and i i've come across this a lot of times now that you can never have anything perfect um you know in in the space right now you got to move fast uh in terms of what you do and you've already talked about a little bit the fail fast fail cheap um methodology but i want to ask what else what other advice would you give to founders who are maybe specifically struggling with the whole fail fast approach well well one of the things you said is i would rather be fast than perfect and to some extent perfect is the enemy of fast um the other uh place that I see entrepreneurs not doing it, they don't take the step. And you can research forever. Uh, I see budding entrepreneurs, oh, I want to start, I'm going to start when I get the right co-founder, I'm going to start when I get this, oh, I'm going to start when I get that. No, you're not going to start when you get that, just do it. So, uh, you know, Nike has a good expression, just do it is the, is the best uh, way. But keep in mind your budget, so don't, don't, you know, don't do a fatal error, but step out and step in uh it helps to be eccentric and i consider myself to be eccentric and what i mean by that well i mean a lot of things by that but one way i'm eccentric is i don't care that much about what you think of me mm -hmm. and, and so i'm actually okay that you think wow jim you're, you're being stupid this is i i, I it, it's just fine i i I have a plaque on my wall that says the greatest pleasure in life is doing those things people say you cannot do. So I, I it's <laughs> fine. I want you to say, oh, Jim's crazy. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's no big deal. As a founder, if you're, if you're able to kind of achieve that fail fast mentality and, and be good at it and um, actually demonstrated yourself as a, as a way to make your, your business work uh, successfully, how do you transcode that or, I don't know, push it out? towards the rest of the team that you work with in order to have the same mindset? Like what, what strategies have worked for you in the past to infuse that mindset or ingrain it into your team members from like a cultural perspective? Um, well, I, like I said, I like to have a culture of failure, which means you don't zap people for failing. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that most traditional businesses zap people more than for failing where you should basically uh celebrate that people tried and uh i mean if you think about many businesses someone's gonna say oh gee you bought a you know you did something that doesn't work well okay let, let's uh you know we have to put that in your review you didn't you didn't work right 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 but how um a lot of people i i find these days are always i mean i say these things to them I'm like hey um it's okay to fail you know let's fail fast let's learn let's improve let's iterate um there's always some sort of reservations at times because, you know, when it comes to performance reviews or other things, or they don't want to look bad in front of their peers, if they say something wrong or, you know, present the wrong thing, like it does require a certain type of personality, I guess, and certain traits in the people. So like, what do you look for in a lot of your team members that you bring on, um, into your, your organization? Well, the, the most important thing you're looking for is passion and that translates to engagement of course you also have to have the integrity but if you have people who are passionate they'll do twice as much as people who aren't passionate and they'll have twice as much energy as people who aren't 
So it's, it's that energy and that passion. And the reason that I focus on that instead of the specific skill set is skill sets can be learned. You have to have basic level of intelligence and stuff, but I'd rather take a passionate person and teach them uh, a skill than to take someone who has a skill level and an education and then try to teach them passion. At the same time, some of that passion is our problem. That is our, the entrepreneur's problem. As the entrepreneur, our job is to inspire our people. And if we're not inspiring our people, we have to look within and say, what are we not doing? That what? How else can we inspire? Now, of course, you can't inspire everybody, and that would mean maybe someone isn't a fit for your team. But your job as an entrepreneur is to inspire. Very true. It's it's sometimes tough to take it out of you and and inspire people, though, I find. <laughs> it, it is. It is. The other thing, to you have to realize everybody's different. So what inspires you is not what inspires the person at the next desk or someone else. Mm -hmm. So different people are inspired by different things. The more you can identify what inspires someone, the greater ability you have to inspire them. Of course, of course. Awesome. Um, I want to I wanna move to another set of questions here, Jim. Um, you've already touched upon it a little bit, but I, I really want to learn more about why you feel this way, which is around your approach around wealth. So you mentioned that you've lived kind of a, a you, ha you have the wealth, but you live comfortably, uh, you know, you don't chew more than what you need, so to speak. And it's kind of your philosophy that you have. Um, and I, I personally really resonated with that because I'm, I'm of the same opinion, but I, I would love to get your perspective if you could share with, with us today in terms of why you really feel that way. So um, partly it's because I'm eccentric. Um, okay. The uh, I'm also, I, I study time management and things take time. So the less things I have, the less time it takes me. So that's one thing. Um, as far as wealth goes, I believe that at the high end of the wealth scale, I've talked to and know a lot of people at this high end of the wealth scale. I have people that are worth, I have friends that are worth a half billion dollars that need to make more money. Well, think about how ludicrous that is. Like, like mm -hmm. you need to make more money when you're worth a hundred million, when you're worth 50 million, whatever the number is. So once you hit that number, wealth, you need a certain amount of wealth for security. You need a certain amount of wealth for the regular comforts that you have. But mm -hmm. beyond that, you should use your wealth to try to save the world and try to make the world a better place. That's my philosophy on wealth. And I know that's very counterculture. Um, now, that said, when you run a business, you do need to keep your working capital. I mean, I, I, can't, uh, I can't give away so much that I don't have working capital, especially when you run a company like Danby, because, uh, uh, you know, we want to open a new factory. We want to, you know... Uh, you know, buy a bunch of molds and dyes and tools and stuff. And, and that does cost capital. So I'm aware of that much simpler if I was just an employee, but, uh, uh Jim, was there, was there something that, uh, changed in you throughout your journey in your life that made you realize the importance of the unimportance of maybe wealth, you know, living, um, did you have a different mindset before when you were younger or? I, I think was it always like this? <laughs> younger, well, I, I always was a thrifty person. So I didn't ever change from that. And like I said, I was capital constrained all through my, and once you've done it for a decade, you just keep going at that. Um, mm -hmm. and the other thing, I, I actually am not comfortable with being ostentatious. 
I'm, I, I, it doesn't make me happy. And uh, <laughs> that same thing goes like for consumption. Matter of fact, if you want to look at one of the problems in our world, and I make goods, which are consumption, we should consume less goods. Less goods, we're hurting our own environment, our own planet. Um, I mean, I was reading today in the um, the news, there's floods with people dying in Belgium from flooding and stuff like that. We have to, re we should try to reduce our consumption as a world. And I know this podcast is probably not going to change people's belief in that, but uh, you're not yeah, going to be happy to have one more thing, <laughs> is my opinion. Uh, that's very true. Um, I have seen wealth do very different things to different people. And funny enough, you know, majority of the time it was never really beneficial for them it never made them happy or never made their lives better it maybe made them more secure but it didn't correlate to pure happiness well the other practice i have is i have a gratitude practice and i believe that gratitude is tied to happiness and a lot of happiness is being grateful for what you have um i, I remember I, it's being grateful for what you have not ungrateful for what you've lost or ungrateful for what someone else has that's what makes people crazy. Oh, that guy has a better uh, car than I. Oh, they have a better swimming pool than I do. They have a bigger cottage than I like. Like that can make you uh, unhappy. Gratitude. And when I uh, like, I have a gratitude journal. I what I'm grateful for. It is almost never things. It's usually friends. It's usually people. And at a real base level, I mean, I can be grateful. I'm not going to bed hungry tonight. Like, uh, you know, I mean, I live a modest life, but. No, I do include food, you know, <laughs> and I'll eat well um, because, you know, I'm lucky. In, in your, in your um, uh, experiences, having uh, invested as an angel investor to many companies who became very successful and, you know, you know, probably had nice exits or even just in general to entrepreneurs who are performing really well, they're doing really well in their businesses and making tons of money but you know might be deeply unpassionate or dissatisfied you know with their work when they reach that point what what would you recommend to them what what advice would you give to make change or to turn it around well i my, my main recommendation is around this gratitude thing and that is um step back and count what your blessings are count what you're grateful for and practice gratitude and it doesn't, it only, in one minute a day, uh, seeing what you have, uh, any problems you have, they are first world problems, right? My power flickered today. Isn't it awful? My computer rebooted. Oh, it was unbelievable. I can't believe how rough my life is. It's true. We, we tend to focus on the small things, which are unimportant when it comes to that. Um, Jim, wanted to ask you a couple more questions. This, these ones are going to be more focused around... Uh, founder failure um, as we do target our primary audience that we do speak to our our founders early stage or maybe um, a, a bit more advanced but um, have you spotted you know I know you've vested and advised in lots of companies um, have you spotted any patterns um, that you've seen along the way that you would recommend our audience to avoid Well, what's happened in the founder world is people think I'm going to be a founder, I'm going to go out and I'm going to raise money and I'm going to be an entrepreneur and so I'm going to raise money so I can pay myself a big fat salary. Well, you're not an entrepreneur. You're not risking your own self. So 
I think not risking is one problem. I also think there's many businesses that shouldn't raise money. If you're a services business, don't raise money because you, you shouldn't raise money. You're a services business. And so I think more founders raise money that shouldn't raise money. As soon as you raise money, you have another constituent you have to deal with. So you already have the constituent of your employees. You already have the constituents of your, your customers. And you have to sell more. All of a sudden, now you have to uh, address uh, shareholders as well. Um, and so if you can avoid investors, avoid investors. I know I say that as a fairly prolific investor. <laughs> uh, a question on um, how founders can be successful, and you, you touched upon it before, is around competitive advantage, right, in terms of uh, how to differentiate. How, if I'm an early stage founder uh, and I'm going into the market with some product idea or whatever it is, how do I assess or what kind of guidelines should I follow in order to truly determine if I have a competitive advantage in the marketplace? Uh, I mean, largely what I do is I look at what do the competitors have? What are they good at? What aren't they good at? And then if I can get good at what they're not good at, usually I end up with competitive advantage. One other okay. trick is to go into a niche and go into focus on something that other people can't focus on. We have a fairly large uh, business on logo fridges. We can put your logo on a dozen fridges. We can put your logo on a thousand fridges. Well, if you call LG and say, uh, you know, I want to buy 20 fridges with a logo on it, they say, well, what do you, you know, we, we can't do 20 fridges. We, I, I say, we'll do 10, we'll do five, we'll do, and, and so little, a niche like that, and as soon as you buy that product, you really can't get that anywhere else. I guess you could go out to some uh, other company, you know, that paints, fr paints, you know, but you, fridges, they yeah. don't do it all the time. The other advantage of a niche is if you've done it, a thousand times, and we probably have done 10,000 or 20,000 logo fridges. If you've done 20,000 logo fridges, you get really good at it. You get fast, you, your waste is less, you, you got your process down where you could do logos, but the first time you do it, you're gonna mess up because you don't know what you're supposed to do or not do, right? And so that's a good example of like, um, maybe finding out what focus or niche you should have in your market or in the right in maybe in the right size market, but how did you determine that companies want logos on their fridges? Like, how did you go through that process? Um, well, you know, in, in my previous business, I would buy logo items to give to, or I'd have contests, right? So you, you'd have logo jackets and logo wear. Well, why not have a logo fridge? The advantage of a fridge is, you know, it's, it's lasts for more than a decade. And so, uh, you know, we've got one company that sells to, uh, auto mechanics. And so to have a fridge sitting in their uh, garage every day with that logo, that is a lot better staying power than a mug because I, am I even going to use your mug? And is it going to be, you know, you know, you give me another pen. I mean, I kind of have a lot of pens and uh, are you going to be the, the better, nicer? So it, it was really along that logo thing. I, I'm also, an, as an entrepreneur, I have uh, entrepreneurial optimism of there's always something that someone can do if you're a, a large enough size difference from your competitor. So mm -hmm. founders often say, oh, how can I compete with uh, this uh, billion dollar company? I love it. If, if you're competing with a billion dollar company and you're a startup, you will be able to find something they don't care about. You can take a million dollars worth of business, a billion dollar company doesn't care. Matter of fact, 
I don't want to encourage everybody to go into the appliance business competing with me, but if you go and uh, and have a million dollar appliance idea, I tell you, I'm probably not going to make your life very miserable because I can't move my needle at a million dollars or half a million dollars. And you can have a very successful business doing 10 of those ideas, a million dollars. You've got a $10 million business. And so what we did in my previous business, we'd, we'd go to the 10 million and then you'd you go into successively larger and larger niches till eventually you're in big niches and all of, but you don't start with the big niches. You start with the smaller niche. So we started with barcode and that was when barcode wasn't really very popular. And then we, uh, then we got into Apple. Well, Apple was much bigger and Apple grew. And then we went into toners and inks. And in the end we, we had a 50%, 50% market share in all toners, all inks, all brands of printers. Like that's, and because we were doing that, we had such dominance, we made it so that the boxes to pack were the perfect size and the process that we had for picking was perfect. We had it so that you don't put two HP toners next to each other on the shelf. You put HP then Lexmark so you don't pick the wrong one by accident. It's little stuff where you go into the warehouse and say, wow, that doesn't look very neat. It would look much neater if you lined up all the same logo in the same aisle. Yeah, it would. And you'd probably end up with some mispicks because... Uh, you're uh, when you're picking product, you're not going to see the difference. So that's a tiny example of micro competitive advantage. Okay. Uh, when, when it comes to um, finding who to target in your initial uh, in your initial market, um, a lot of people recommend focusing on your evangelists, people who are willing to maybe to pay a premium, or you know, in that niche offering, people who are willing to pay more money for something. Um, to get it and then using that those people and that money to kickstart the rest of like some of your larger um, business product lines that you want to do did, did did anything like that happen with with you earlier on did you have like one specific focus where it was very fo targeted maybe a bit more premium or uh so how we, do you look at that so we didn't tend to uh focus at more premium um when i when you look at it companies tend to disrupt from the bottom up, not from the top down. So if you look at the car industry, when um, Hyundai came to the market, they entered at the bottom. And if you said you had a Hyundai 20 years ago, you said, what a piece of junk. Oh, you know, that's, that's not a fine. If you said you bought a Hyundai Sonata today, oh, cool car. You know, it's, it's pretty high end. So Toyota came from the bottom end and disrupts up. And it's not like you're saying, oh, I'm going to buy the Rolls Royce, um, you know, the, the eco Rolls Royce. No, you don't disrupt from the top down, you disrupt from the bottom up. So that's how I did it um, generally. Now that said, I also believe in listening to the customer. So find out what the customers, so you always say, you know, is there anything else uh, I can do for you? Any any suppliers you're having problems with? So uh, you find, oh yeah, they, they're, they have a great sell through on uh, air fryers. Okay, they, you know, they want an air fryer. Great, well, we'll, we'll do an air fryer because there's high demand. They're sold out of air fryers. That's great, mm -hmm. um, if it fits our niche and what we do, of course. I'm sure you've had a lot of ideas come your way, Jim, yeah. in terms of whether your team or your customers. I mean, you, saying no must have come up a few times in, in your in your history, in terms of saying no to different business ideas or product ideas. Uh, of course, one of the like when I was growing the business, one of the things I would do when I said we're doing a fifty million, I said how do you get to be a hundred million? I study when you're a hundred million, how do you do two hundred million? It tended to be 
not what I would need to do. It would be what I needed to not do. So to scale the business, it would be I would um, scale. I, I would. What would I give up? And that often involves saying no. Now that said, as a multi entrepreneur, I'm terrible at saying no. I say yes way too often, and every time, <laughs> and then my time gets too cramped, and I'm going to say no to everything, no to everything, and then of course I get back. Oh, that's a cool idea. I'm I'm actually quite ADD. Like, oh, there's another shiny object. Let me go at the shiny object, and then I lose interest in the shiny object. Was there was there any opportunity that you passed on that, uh, you know? you regret it on or you know or didn't meet your criteria but it actually was successful well sure i mean we talked earlier about uh, hard goods versus uh, software and so uh, i got approached to invest in a company called lotus and uh, that was many years ago and if you track what lotus that would have been like uh, a, a huge investment at the time i would have uh, made a fortune on uh, on lotus but i said no no nobody Nobody needs software, and uh, and they were making uh, essentially a spreadsheet, which was going to knock the existing spreadsheet SuperCalc out of the market. And I thought, oh, you're not going to do that. And sure enough, they did. And of course, then they got knocked out later by uh, Excel. But uh, that was one opportunity that I missed. But I have missed a lot of lot a lot a lot of opportunities, a lot of them. Um, for sure. Uh, on that note, what? Um... I want to ask you about like analysis paralysis. Uh, how have you gone about managing that? Uh, you see, I don't tend to have much analysis paralysis. I notice that some founders do, some entrepreneurs do, and I encourage them not to have that. I don't have analysis paralysis because I'm impatient. And uh, people tend to underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade and overestimate what they can accomplish in a day. But I tend to be one of those guys that okay, so we're going to do this, let's have it on Monday, and uh, um, how tough can it be to, uh, to do? I don't, I don't tend to overanalyze, and I should probably analyze more, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, Jim, just a couple last things. Uh, one thing I, maybe I want to end off with is that you've, I want to let the audience know that you've written two books, one on time management called Time Leadership, Using the Secrets of Leadership for Time Management, and more recently, zero to two billion, the marketing and branding story behind the growth. So what can someone reading those books expect to learn from them? Well, the time management one is old, so they're going to expect to hear about some old, old, old technologies. But time management doesn't change. It. I, I, the reason I wrote that one is my fundamental belief in business. It's how you spend your time is determined will determine your success, and everything is about priorities and and whatnot. So that's what you get from time management. Uh, I wrote it when I was more uh, driven potentially than I am now. I've learned as I've gotten older, I'm a little more mellow. If you read the book, you're gonna think, wow, this guy's totally uh, too much by the clock. The uh, zero to two billion, uh, that's just a bunch of marketing philosophies. Um, it's a collection of blog entries that I wrote around marketing. And most of that is guerrilla marketing because again, I didn't have a lot of money. So how's the best way to get um, bang for your marketing without spending much money um that that's the focus of that uh, of that cool uh, thanks for sharing that uh, i'll end up with maybe two rapid fire questions okay with rapid uh responses so what so first one is what do you believe that other ceo other ceos disagree with you on fundamentally uh so that's a really good question 
it, I think it would be my wealth philosophies. I know so many CEOs that all they want is to make more money, and that is, and for some reason they don't understand that we need to save the world. So that would be the major thing I disagree awesome. with, and and it also uh, extends into pay scales of people that work with us. I believe the person at the lowest level should be do well if the company does well where many other companies say no we're only going to have bonus program at the executive level we don't need a bonus program on the hourly you know we just want to hire them at the lowest possible price and not give them a dime it's a it's a very similar approach i think than um i think the ceo of a company called gravity payments uh dan i can't remember oh yeah 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 he has a very similar approach where he gave everybody a minimum wage that's right his salary by like 94 percent and um it really was successful for him. It really worked, but like a lot of CEOs do not want to do that for, I don't know, crazy reasons. But uh, last question for you um, is what makes you nervous? Well, you see, entrepreneurs live in fear. And, and so what makes me nervous? I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about politics. I'm worried about the environment. I'm worried about everything, everything, everything. And so this fear is what drives us, drives me. Um, but you learn over time to, to live with it. It just mm -hmm. is what it is. Like what's happening with inflation? Like what's happening with the, like there's a post-pandemic economy where, what's the post-pandemic economy going to be? We, we actually had a good boost in freezer sales because of the pandemic. Everyone wanted, didn't want to go grocery shopping as much. Now, what's going to happen after that? Is no one going to buy any freezers? Because they all have freezers now, right? That's so true. Uh, awesome. Jim, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was, it was an incredible pleasure of mine to have you on our show. Um, and thank you to all of our dear listeners for tuning in, supporting the show, following us on LinkedIn. We don't take it for granted and really appreciate it. So this was another off the record episode with another awesome founder. We'll be back here soon again. And uh, once again, Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. We are proud.